Hello and welcome to Love is a Message, a podcast about music, the dance floor and counterculture. My name is Tim Lawrence and I'm joined here over the laptop uh, internet connection with Jeremy Gilbert. Hi, Jem. Hi. How are you? I'm fine. Good. Yeah, I'm all right, thanks. Um... So I guess we can we can begin this show with the exciting news that instead of doing one episode on Bob Marley and the Whalers and counterculture, uh, we've realised that we, <laughs> not for the first time, can't quite fit everything that we wanted to say into 60 minutes, which we're desperately trying to uh, hit as the maximum recording time for each show anyhow. So we are going to split this one up into two shows um, and we'll do our best to take it up to the release of Catch a Fire in 1973 in this show, and then we'll do the rest of Bob Marley's career and also what happened to the Whalers in a, in a subsequent show. So, Jem, why don't you uh, set up some of the things that we want to talk about today? Okay, well, obviously, Bob Marley and the Whalers have a very particular place in the history of reggae and its popularisation, arguably more the latter than the former, if you're a real aficionado of the genre. But they played a really crucial role in the popularisation of reggae globally, but also within Jamaica itself. Bob Marley becomes this extremely influential national figure and a figure in national political culture in a way that no musician ever has in any European country or North American country that I'm aware of, at least. So... Very important figures, very important music. And it's also music which in some ways feels so ubiquitous that it's quite easy to overlook its importance, I think. I think we've really, we've had to make an effort ourselves to step back a little bit from the fact that so many of the best-known Bob Marley tunes just seem to be part of the air that we breathe. If you grow up in, if you grow up in Britain, in British musical culture... Tim's heard me say this loads of times, but I always think it's it's a really interesting observation that personally, I've, I don't think I've ever been to a wedding in, in Britain where I haven't heard Bob Marley played at least once as part because it's part of a repertoire of music which is quite easy to dance to. It's, really, it's thought of as easy to dance to and it's sufficiently familiar to anybody that it, it can just be part of the the wedding DJ repertoire. So there's a sense in which it's becoming depoliticized there, obviously, you're saying, right? It's just Well, it's not uh, no, it's not just that. That's not the point, really. The point is just that it's so ubiquitous. It feels so ubiquitous that I think we've had to make a bit of an effort to step back and reflect on just how important it is, just how incredibly important it is. Uh and that's why we've ended up having quite a lot to think about and say about it. But I think we're gonna start the sort of historical story of Bob Marley in the way that's quite early. And I think you're going to lead off on that, aren't you? Yeah, I am. And uh, and one thing to just kind of note, I suppose, is that we are indeed starting with Bob Marley and the Whalers and, and not Bob Marley. To a certain extent, Bob Marley ended up becoming Bob Marley. But I don't know if Bob Marley started off as Bob Marley in, in quite the same way. He was part of a kind of uh, quite interesting, clearly musically progressive and clearly socially progressive music culture um, that was r- rooted in, in J- Jamaican society. Um, and by, you know, s- at some point towards the middle or second half of his career, Bob Marley did sort of become more Bob Marley. And I suppose one lingering question that we've got is, how we understand counterculture, and in, in this case, it's the way in which a certain sort of countercultural hero did become somewhat individualized 
And this did cause some tensions um, with, you know, the other two members of the whalers, but also I think to some extent, you know, the the scene in which kind of Bob Marley and the whalers kind of came from, where there was a sense that in order for, for Bob Marley to become this kind of international icon, certain things happened to him that divorced him from some of the practices of, you know, maybe Rastafarianism or some of the the principles that were driving sort of Jamaican music and sound system culture. But we'll come back to these. Uh, but yeah, this is why we partly want to kind of tell the story somewhat from the beginning. So, so the Whalers uh, formed in 1963. They had a, a bunch of names, actually. I think they were first called the Teenagers, then maybe the Whalin Whalers, uh, then Bob Marley and the Whalers. Uh, it was the Whalers that for the first few years, I mean, for much of the 60s, that was really the name that, that stuck. And there were, of course, three key players, Bob Marley, uh, Peter Tosh and Bunny Whaler. Um, so just to give you a little, tiny bit about, bit about their backgrounds, uh, Peter Tosh was, was born Peter McIntosh uh, in western Jamaica, Westmoreland. He was abandoned by his parents, kind of shuffled, uh, was shuffled among different relatives as he grew up and eventually moved to Kingston, aged 15, uh, after an aunt died. Uh, and it was there that he, in, in Kingston, he learned to play guitar. And then a vocal teacher, Joe Higgs, who was giving free lessons to kids, free music lessons to kids, uh, introduced uh, Peter Tosh to Bob Marley and to Bunny Whaler. So Bunny Whaler, uh, born Neville O'Reilly Livingston, uh, was a singer-songwriter and percussionist, uh, was born in Kingston and just became a childhood friend of Bob Marley's after Bob Marley moved to Kingston. Uh, Bob Marley was born Robert Nestor Marley and was born in a small rural Jamaican village called Nine Miles. And as is well known, Marley came from a mixed race background. His father was was white, Captain Norville Marley, a superintendent of the lands for the British government. Uh, whereas his mother, Sedella, I think is how he pronounced her name, was a young black woman descended from the Acromanty tribe, uh, who as slaves had been involved in some of the bloodiest, uh, fiercest resistance during the island's slave and plantation era. Um, so Bob Marley's mum and dad married, uh, but then his dad left. I, I'm not even sure exactly when. It sounds as though kind of, you know, immediately somehow or other. Maybe, I'm not quite sure if it was before he was born or right after. Um, but Bob Marley was born in 1945 and moved to Kingston in the 1950s. And basically grew up in slum conditions, you know, kind of, you know, run-down kind of shack made out of corrugated iron. And became a, a rude boy as a, as a teenager, was listening to R&B in Scar. And um, quite early on, 1963, so 18 years old, I think, uh, wrote a track called Judge Not and recorded it with Leslie Kong, who was a Kingston producer. And uh, it was released on Beverly's Records in 1962, and then Chris Island, uh, Chris, Chris Blackwell's Island Records in 1963. And it was then that Marley formed a vocal group with Bunny Whaler and Peter Tosh. Um, there were also some short, uh, short-term members, including Junior Brathwaite and Beverly Kelso, but eventually it settled into the trio of Bob Marley, Bunny Whaler and Peter Tosh. And they eventually settled on this name, the Whalers. Bunny was also already Bunny Whaler. Uh, and to wail means to mourn or express one's feelings vocally, as, as Pete Tosh put it uh, one, one time. The idea was they were kind of calling out to the ghetto, to the sufferers and to the, to the witnesses. 
tapping into this idea of, of saffron. So in 1964, the Whalers released um, eight singles, or maybe more, but that's how many I counted on Discogs. Maybe it's nine, actually. Uh, and it included, just want to play some of their early music, included uh, this track called Simmer Down, which was released uh, during 1964 on Coxone Records. So, you know, what we're hearing here is, you know, um, up, you know, it's clearly ska music. Um, so, you know, Bob Marley, the Whalers, I should say, not yet Bob Marley and the Whalers, um, were part of this kind of ska scene that would soon uh, mutate into a kind of rock steady scene before it, you know, would mutate again into the reggae scene. And this particular track, Simmer Down, was written uh, effectively to, to, the dis- to the kind of the concerns, or addressed, I should say, the concerns of Bob Marley's mother, uh, who worried about the violence that could, you know, was, you know, could kind of run through the rude boy scene and some of the some of these parties and gatherings uh, as gangs kind of, you know, would would front up to each other. So Simmer Down was about sort of settling down and a plea to local gangs to back off from violence. Apart from anything else, you know, the kind of official authorities would intervene and things could again get really problematic. So this in a sense you I suppose we could say that at an early point, Bob Marley, to pick out Bob Marley in particular, was had already found one of his major themes, really. This idea of, you know, avoiding violence, people from different backgrounds, you know, coming together and uh, and doing so peacefully. And their record was uh, recorded by Cox and Dodd with the Scatterlights playing the instrumentation, performing a lot of the music. And the record was played, you know, as was often the case, that the night it was recorded, it it was played at one of the sound system parties that Cox and Dodd was running. It was kind of this immediate sensation um, that went to the top of the Jamaican charts and was, you know, arguably, and we are still in 1964 here, it was arguably the first time a voice from the ghetto was speaking to others who lived the same situation. So kind of very much addressing this kind of social situation, kind of the potential for, for violence and the need for it to be kind of toned down. So yeah, it's a really compelling record. That's a, an overused adjective in these days in many contexts. So I should try to think of another one. I guess what really struck me when I first listened to it for the show is that it had a kind of looseness. It combined this combines this looseness that would later become typical of the sort of classic reggae sound of the Bob Marley and the Whalers with that typical scar urgency. But I guess if it's the Scatterlights doing who are the backing band, then they can't really be attributed in any way to Bob Marley and the Whalers as such. So but yeah, it's very, uh, it's a very exciting sort of scar record. Whether whoever one can attribute it to, that, the thing that really struck me about it was that it had, it already seemed to have something of that sort of loose depth that you would come to associate later with roots reggae and mm. dub, even even while it has that very urgent, that sort of very urgent rhythmic propulsive feel of classic scar. 
maybe that's something to do with the thematics as well. Like, you know, a, a loosening up rather than something that's, I guess with a lot of scar, it is kind of, it's something about his kind of energy that is, you know, can, you can see, can topple over, tip over, I should say, into something that's like somewhat aggressive, maybe. I remember going to kids that, you know, when I was like a kid going to, you know, as a, I mean, I was born in 1967. So, you know, a lot of this scar stuff had been kind of come out. I mean, I grew up, I basically grew up listening to sort of the specials and madness and bad manners, these kind of UK kind of punk oriented kind of scar punk bands. And there was always a sense where, you know, they could, the aggro was always. <laughs> Always around. There was always a, like a, a, the possibility of aggro becoming something that would happen on the dance floor, because of the energy. Partly because of the energy of the music, but not so much in the one. Not so much in this one. Maybe it's a bit more looser. Well, I think it. There's a whole other story which I guess we're not getting into today about the the white inter sort of white interpretation of scar, which mm. it, indeed it, it first happens with. Uh, the, the Scar revival around Two-Tone in the early 80s, but it happens again with the American like punk Scar fads of the late 90s, early 2000s. And in all those cases, what people are hearing in the Scar... I mean, Scar takes its name from, from that classic... Uh, rhythmic rhythm guitar sound it's a very where you you hold the strings very tight and you strum very tight with very little reverb and it goes ska 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 that, that's what it's supposed to get its name from it's a very slightly percussive use of the rhythm guitar strumming and so it, you can see how it very easily does get turned into a very trebly sort of sound a very it's quite an uptight sound it's quite tight and very linear but then it also that's not how it evolves in jamaica itself it evolves it slows down the bass comes to the front and it evolves in a very different direction into reggae mm. but you can hear how it's sort of got that potential but also i think our uh, you know his, you can hear how it's got that potential but when you it's so when you but when you get that that rhythmic propulsive quality combined with that sense of looseness it's very affecting so yeah, so the 1964, they were the the Whalers were pretty prolific. Uh, as I say, they released something like nine singles, uh, and the following year in 1965, they released something like 16 singles. Again, it may have been more, but that's how much I could count on Discogs. It's quite. I mean, I guess it's quite interesting to just reflect on very briefly that uh, this seemed to be a period where you know the 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 album didn't really exist as a, com a particularly as an important commodity format. I mean, these were the, the bands that were recording were basically recording singles and there were loads of singles and you could sort of see that then when a compilation came out as a, as it did for the whalers um, reasonably soon into into this this period when a compilation would come out it was really necessary because it was like there were all these singles that had been released and it was like why not put them all together on an album it, you know we've now become used to the idea that a compilation is a is a a collection of of a band's best known recordings from their career. That's how compilations have come to function. But at this point, they were, it was kind of served an entirely different purpose when they when they when they came together because this were these were this was a music culture that's dominated by kind of the release of, of of you know seven inch singles and the and the Whalers were contributing prolifically to that. So yeah, so in 1965 they released at least 16 singles, and one of them, as is you know, and one of the best known records uh, 
from the whalers from this particular year is the record called one love So One Love um, was a reworking of uh, records by the Impressions called People Get Ready, which was also uh, recorded in 1965. Uh, but this obviously takes that kind of soul record, which is quite a kind of quite a sort of mellow and um, pensive record, um, into scar territory. Uh, it's much more upbeat, um, you know, much more danceable. And it's also, and we'll come back to this, I guess, in the, the the second of these two shows. It's also much, much more kind of upbeat uh, and energetic than the slower, uh, more polished, and you know, arguably kind of poppier version that eventually is released on Exodus by Bob Marley, going under the name of Bob Marley and the Whalers. Incidentally, but we'll come back to the politics of that if you like later. Uh, in 1977. Um, so I don't. I really like the Scar version. I know I knew it less well than than the kind of Bob Marley uh, version, re-recorded re uh, and re-released in 1977. And it has this story of a sort of upbeat togetherness. Um, you know, it sort of seems to coincide. I mean, this is 65. It's sort of, you know, I guess you could say it anticipates the Beatles, all you need is love maybe. I mean, love is one of our themes, right? So we can we can even potentially spend a little little bit of time thinking about this but you know we our show is called love is the message that record was released i guess is late 1973 by mfsb david david mancuso's party love saves the day it was 1970 i mean there's lots of talk of love obviously in the late 60s uh as the kind of you know counterculture and the hippie movement gather momentum but this is a reasonably early articulation of it actually um, which clearly has a sort of, you know, it sort of seems to evoke aspects of, a, of an acid experience, although clearly that isn't a reference point here. Uh, but there's a religious, you know, spiritual side of, you know, we are all one sort of thing that's kind of coming through that. At the same time, there are references to children. You know, it's not just all about kind of being, you know, kind of happy clappy together. Uh, you know, there's references in the song to children crying, fighting the holy Armageddon, Sort of, you know, which is presumably Babylon, and it's sort of like a Rasta theme almost coming through this this music. But before Bob Marley actually got into Rastafarianism, um, which didn't come until maybe sixty six, possibly sixty seven, uh, which we'll come back to in just a little bit. So there's, but I guess what you could say, I always would say this about Arthur Russell actually. You know, Arthur Russell's sort of, you, you can read Arthur Russell's music through Buddhism if you wanted, if you want to. And Arthur did become a, a Buddhist, but you could sort of say that he had a kind of Buddhist outlook or a Buddhist like persona or that he was open to these ideas before he became a Buddhist. You know, maybe there's something going on with Bob Marley with this. You know, he's not, he hasn't yet got into Rastafarianism um, at all, as far as I'm aware. And yet he's saying some of the things we've already had this in simmer down, like let's not let's let's avoid the fighting at the party, shall we guys? Uh, and you have it here in one love that he's kind of speaking speaking the language before he kind of becomes you know officially aligned with uh, the religion. Um, what do you what do you think of all this? Yeah, well, I think it's really fascinating because obviously one love 
as you say, is re- the version that's recorded in 77 is one that everybody knows. Like everybody knows that. Everybody knows mm. that. And everybody knows it as an anthem and a slogan. And yeah, it is really interesting that it's slightly faster, more, more danceable version is already recorded in 65 and you're completely right it's fascinating that this slogan is out there in 65 because it is i mean one love as a slogan as a catchphrase it expresses a whole set of different things that are condensed very effectively into this two-word phrase so it does express a sort of philosophical universalism which you can see coming out of strands of christianity uh, and I think probably is, and it probably that is indicative of the extent to which Rastafarian ideas are partially moving into the mainstream of Jamaican culture by this point, even if Bob Marley hasn't formally converted. But also it makes me think about how on the patrons episode we did recently, the What We're Listening To episode, we listened to that uh, Josie Ben track from the mid-70s, which is making an explicit reference to the Western mystery tradition and the way in which, you know, what scholars of religion call perennialist ideas are, are around in a lot of different contexts at this time. You know, perennialism is the belief that there's basically one underlying core to all the great world religions and it's usually based on the idea that at their at their heart is some consistent mystical experience which you might give you might give different names to if you are a buddhist or a sufi or a hindu or a christian but it's fundamentally the same experience and expresses the same set of ideas so of course one of the big promoters of this idea was Aldous Huxley who also was a big proselytizer for psychedelics and partly because he was the person who really came up with the idea that psychedelics what makes them valuable is they give you access to this perennial mystical experience because perennialism is totally uncool with like religious studies scholars these days because it's because it's seen as a bit essentialist because it it insists that, that the, all these different people who are talking quite a different language are actually having the same experience, even though they don't realise it. And that seems being quite patronising. It's just a problematic. But there definitely is a sort of perennial, you know, Rastafarianism becomes a vocabulary for a sort of popular perennialism in lots of different contexts, like a, a version of Rasta philosophy, which isn't really that bothered about whether Haile Selassie is really the second coming or black people are the lost tribe of Israel, but is more interested in, in, in a very generic kind of spiritual experience and a generic appeal to peace, love and unity on every possible scale. It becomes a really important part of the general vocabulary of lots of different social groups and countercultural groups. I mean, I don't know when we're ever going to get to this. We will one day get to this point. But, you know, by the time I was old enough in the late 80s to be going to like squat parties and early free raves and punk gigs, it was already the case that one of the most noticeable social phenomena in terms of the kind of or anthropological phenomena the kind of people you would meet were basically former punks who had become hippies. Like people who at one point in their youth would have hated 
the idea of being a hippie and they were a punk and they were an anarchist. Uh, but then they had obviously just become, to all intents and purposes, what we would recognise as a hippie. You know, they were interested in alternative spirituality and they were pacifist in their attitudes, even though they might still be anarchist. And the transition, the mode, the thing that would transition people in all those cases from being a an, an, like an, a punk, often an anarcho punk, to being a hip, basically a hippie, was reggae. It was reggae, and it was reggae culture, and it was the Rastafarian vocabulary. Uh, which somehow combined this sense of militant struggle against Babylon with anti-violence and and with a version of a perennialist philosophy that essentially appeals to the idea that at the core of all workable social philosophies is a single set of values and it is uh, and it is a, a set of values which indeed advocates for you know one love a, a sense of unity a sense of and a sense that the basic value of love as a sort of political virtue can overcome social differences, economic differences, cultural differences, etc. So, yeah, it is amazing that it is there in 1965. And indeed, to refer it back to some of the uh, other things we've looked at on the show so far, I can't think of an earlier example. I can't think of an earlier example of a song in a popular musical genre making a direct appeal to that sort of universalist, quasi-perennialist ideal of 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 love as a sort of, as a sort of mystical and political force. Hmm. Of course, one of the big influences on this, and it is an influence within Jamaican culture, is Gandhiism. I mean, Gandhi was a sort of fairly committed perennialist and, and he was a big influence on lots of people. He's a big influence on Martin Luther King, big influence on various people involved in various third world struggles. So that's obviously one of the sources as well. But I don't know. I can't think of any earlier example. Well, John Coltrane, Love Supreme is 1965, isn't it? Yeah, but John Coltrane, he's doing avant-garde jazz. He's yeah, yeah, like no, char- I'm just saying, I'm just, talk, I'm, I'm, talk, I'm just talking about yeah. this idea, this use of love in a way yeah. that is kind of... No, you're completely right, yeah. Anyway, well, completely right, yeah. He's also talking about exactly... I mean, a Love Supreme is appealing to the same idea totally, yeah. Yeah, so... Uh, and that's also 65, yeah, good point. Yeah, that is 65, yeah. No, it is interesting though. So, I mean, just to kind of fill in sort of, bef- but just before we go to the next record, to fill in some of the missing gaps around this uh, story of Bob Marley and Rastafarianism, um, shortly after the recording of this track, Bob Marley's mum moved to Delaware in the United States and um, persuaded Bob Marley to join her. Um, he had met i'm just trying to get uh remember the sequence here but he had already met and married uh rita um just forget trying to remember rita's surname but anyway rita became rita marley i don't quite know what happened with the marriage at this point when bob did go and live with his with his mum briefly i don't know for how many months in the united states to try it out there i think he worked for chrysler or something while he was there um but um it didn't work out uh, but it was while he was in in the United States, Haile Selassie, uh, the emperor of Ethiopia, made his kind of his legendary visit to Jamaica, and that had a big impact on on Rita, who attended this mass gathering of Rastas that turned out to witness. I don't know if she was at the airport, but there was then his this kind of motorcade went from the airport to visit the. I think it was the Governor General, and Rita kind of witnessed that. And anyway whatever the circumstances were she did become a rasta rastafarian following this experience started to grow her hair 
by the time Bob returned, kind of having become disillusioned or given up on the idea of of staying in the United States, uh, so returned to Jamaica and asked Rita what happened, was apparently initially put off, but then took to the religion himself during 1967-68. I'm not kind of sure if there was like a complete conversion. I'm not even entirely sure what that might involve. There's a biography of Bob Marley by Timothy White, titled Catch a Fire, that says that he didn't really completely adopt the religion until the early 1970s. But anyway, his interest in it certainly started in this period of 1967-68, so following the release of of One Love and following the um, Haile Selassie's visit to Jamaica. And I think just making this point in part, because it was, as you sort of said, Jem, in in your last comments, it was, it was, it was Rastafarianism that Bob Marley would get into, plus this uh, soon to emerge sound of reggae that sort of became the precursor to Bob Marley and the Whalers becoming this kind of key countercultural figures. It was Rastafarianism, the Rastafarianism that kind of gave it sort of, sort of, a, a political coherence, I suppose you could say, um, and it was reggae that gave it the space for this kind of for this for these ideas to be articulated because it was a different set of aesthetics boundaries that were at play when you know because this is an old question, right? But to what extent can you introduce kind of politically meaningful, for want of a better term, lyrics into music that's kind of for partying? Many artists have felt that you know you need a different kind of you know. A set of structures, whether it's about you know whether it's jazz or whether it's slower music, in order to convey more serious topics, uh, or maybe angrier music. I don't know, but anyway, this was the, everything is. I'm, what, what I'm trying to say is that by this point, everything is is more or less in place. You know, Rastafarianism plus reggae's the emergence of reggae around the corner. It will set up Bob Marley and the Whalers becoming these kind of countercultural figures. <laughs> Thanks very much for tuning in. Uh, Gem and I are loving doing this show, uh, but it's also a lot of work, and we're really grateful to everyone who has become a patron, as this will help us keep doing the podcast uh, for, you know, hopefully much, much longer. We're really getting going with the patron benefits now, and we're doing extra content for patrons almost every other week. Um, So hopefully that's an incentive for some of you to uh, become a patron. If you want to do this, uh, you can head to our Patreon uh, page, which is www.patreon.com forward slash love message pod and there's also the link in the podcast app uh obviously we realize that not everyone can afford to become a patron and the thing that we most want is for everyone to listen in uh we we're totally committed to keeping uh the podcast uh the main part of the podcast uh to be aired for free uh but if you can support us that'd be really incredible okay thanks for that back to the show So, yeah, so the next album, actually, that the Whalers released was, as you as you said, was a, as you alluded to, it was a compilation of, a compilation of singles, I think. The next actual studio album was Soul Rebel. Which is the first studio album, really, isn't it? 
I think. I'm not sure, actually. I guess so, yeah. Well, it's the first one, but it's usually talked about as being their second, it's usually referred to as their second studio album. Right. And the um, the Wailing Wailers is referred to as the first one. Right. So then that first one wasn't just a compilation of singles already released, I suppose. No, the, the, in, yeah. well, in between, there's an album called The Best of the Wailers. Right, okay. Yeah, they done, right. yeah, they, yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah. They'd done enough singles yeah. by, like, 1967 or whatever, yeah, 68, yeah. to release a Best of. Yeah. Because indeed, as you said, the albums just weren't really a thing, and they weren't—they weren't really a thing in any genre other than folk and, and jazz, actually. And uh, well, I guess classical music. Well, no, they—they they became they were becoming a thing in rock music mm. by by sixty five, sixty six. Yeah, yeah. They weren't a big deal before that. No, absolutely. Um, and so, and this really marks this really marks reggae emerging as a studio album genre this record really soul rebels it's produced by lee scratch perry mm. uh it's a very experimental record it really can you can really hear the the sort of spacious minimalism of dub in uh, influencing the production there's a fair bit of echo on the vocals and things like that but it's also quite sparse most of the production so it, and it's already clearly having an effect. Uh, it, it's one of those records where it really is like an album because each track is quite different from the one that went before it. And the music really has an interesting quality, I think. It's all, I think, well, I'll say a bit more about the musical qualities of the record, of the album as a whole. I think we should, let's just hear it. We'll hear a couple of tracks, but I guess the first one we can play is just... Uh, the album is called Soul Rebels and the, type, the track is called Soul Rebels. Soul Rebels. Okay, well, I mean, obviously, the the whole idea of being a soul rebel is is an explicitly countercultural idea being expressed here in 1970. Uh, in some ways, the very peak moment of the idea of counterculture, and it is really it really says something about why reggae is so important in the overall story we're telling on this podcast because. There's no other example, really. There's certainly no other example in this historical period of the high point of the counterculture. It was an idea coming out of the States, but manifesting itself in many different contexts, being something that really ends up informing mainstream politics. Yeah, it ends up informing ma- mainstream politics in the way that it will. This idea will end up informing the politics of Michael Manley and the socialist movement in Jamaica. So it's really interesting because it's a very interesting idea. But at this moment, 1970, Soul Rebel, the idea of being a soul rebel is still a countercultural idea. But it's an idea which, at least in Jamaica, is on the point of becoming a fairly mainstream idea. It's on the point of achieving some kind of hegemony within Jamaican culture. And the track itself, I think I've pretty much said, it's pretty typical, you know, typifies some of the qualities I've just attributed to the record as a whole, to the album as a whole. And what do you think of it? I'll say a bit more about it in a minute. What do you think? Yeah, well, um, I, I, I like this a, a great deal. 
yeah, I mean, of all the all the Bob Marley albums that I've heard, I would say this is this is probably my favourite. I don't know if that's a contentious thing to say or not, but um, <laughs> in my naivety uh, around this cat, this particular catalogue, but yeah, I really like it. Um, I think it's, I mean, it's it's maybe you know the the latter albums become much more obvious, much more um, highly produced, much more polished. I find this is quite raw. Um, I don't think there's any overdubs on this album. Um, the bass is very prominent. I think there's been sometimes people say it's a bit bit boomy the bass in the recording, but I don't have a problem with that. I mean, it's not not because I'm particularly into booming bass, but just because I really like the. I think there's a the feel is is very pronounced on this recording. Yeah, and I think it's. I mean, there is this thing where it's clearly the the you know Bob. First of all, I think they it's they are called, by this point they are this or this might be the first time they start to call themselves Bob Marley and the Whalers. They don't then just become Bob Marley and the Whalers following this, but that's the it's, that's kind of this is this is a, the start of that I think. But um, I mean, clearly there is this shift towards reggae on this album from some of the their previous recordings, which had been variously could be could have been categorized as scar and also as rock steady so this goes into that territory but it's kind of interesting that they're just they're calling themselves soul rebels already because ras one of the things about reggae is that it's very much about the turn away from the the u.s or american influence on jamaican music that have been very pronounced in scar and also very pronounced in rock steady and the idea part of the idea of reggae was it becomes much more a sound that is more focused on traditional Jamaican idioms and doesn't look towards the United States. But Soul Soul Rebel sort of does do that somewhat in kind of a very obvious way. Um, and the other thing to know is that this is, I mean, it's a, I think one of the things about the album is it's got this kind of roots reggae feel, and I do really like that roots, re- roots reggae feel, but it is quite soulful in, in, in parts. Like there is this, one of the records is like, it's all right. And it's kind of, it is very soulful. I think Marley's got, uh, so at one point, he sort of, there's a line that says, you know, got to groove or something. And, uh, you and know, it's they all are... right is the, is the most funk influence track on the yeah, record. Yeah, exactly. It's quite Ex- James Brown influenced. Exactly, exactly. So I think that's this isn't. I wouldn't sort of say that this is pure. It's got a very. It feels very roots reggae, but it does feels very. It feels very rootsy, I suppose. Um, in its kind of yeah, in its instrumentation and recording, but it also move. It does sort of move around. And is a bit more up tempo in, in parts than you might as uh, normally associate with some roots reggae. Well, that mm. rootsiness I wanted to talk about actually, because mm. I think it is interesting. Because to me, when I was listening to it to get ready for the show, I thought, I mean, there's this almost folk-like sort of spirituality and earnestness about it in a lot of places, and it was in, it is interesting to reflect that that is this is also the moment of the turn to sort of folk rock and country rock. It, by a lot of bands in the states, it's the the moment of the folk rock and electric folk movement in Britain. And to me, there is an interesting affinity between between all those things. So they're all, to some extent, they're trying to turn away in certain senses from what are obviously commercial, sort of capitalistic forms of music, or what seem to be. They're trying to find some idea of a of a music which can express a sense of authenticity and a sense of spirituality, which is self-consciously outside of sort of commercial capitalist culture. And it's quite, I think that's very interesting set of affinities there. 
I mean, the other thing, just coming back to th- what you were just saying about the relationship to things like soul music as well, is that I think we sort of saw this with Afrobeat as as well, that there's this complex relationship with Black American music and Black power in the one of the logic part of the logical conclusion of moving from the politics of say civil rights to the politics of black power is that you move from a politics which is essentially about claiming a place within liberal democratic culture for black people to a politics which is informed by a much more profound critique of, of imperialism and colonialism and their legacies and then one of the logical conclusions of that is given that america itself is the imperial hegemon is that at some point you're actually going to be trying to moving away partly from from forms that are born there from american forms and of course, this was part of the culture of black power in America. They turned to Afrocentrism, people adopting African names and African dress, and also a degree of anxiety, actually, about whether even funk could be a truly African music, including here African-American people, because ultimately it had come out of the experience you know, of, Ameri- of, of America. Was It was part of the discourse of like black, black power circles in America. So the logic of, a, of of both an embrace of forms associated with black militancy in America and at the same time an attempt to distance oneself from American cultural forms. is That's part of the dynamic of what's going mm. on in the music of the Black Atlantic, even in America, but clearly in, in, in the Caribbean and in Africa as well. Mm. Yeah, no, that's really interesting. I think you're right. I mean, there's also this desire that there are these tensions, and then there's at the same time this the, the sort of the sort of naked fact that um, the merit, you know, the United States is a it's a huge market for music, and one that yeah. you know one that many musicians who aren't located in the United States wouldn't mind kind of breaking into. And I think I'm not. I suppose I'm saying this because I know that it became something that Bob Marley in particular wanted to do. He wanted to sort of break into you know black radio in the united states he saw that as you know as a potential audience uh, but i'm not entirely sure uh, the exact point if if that can even be identified when he started to want to do this um, i'm not suggesting that the use of the soul rebel title is a, is a is a deliberate attempt to break into that market but i do think this was the um might have been the first album by recorded by the whalers that did have a did have an international release actually uh so it was this was yeah it was this album was released outside of jamaica as well as within jamaica so that might have been part of the thinking for it i'm not too sure and there's always this thing of kind of wanting to establish kind of you know i suppose there's there's something going on here where there's the the emergence of a kind of black diasporic consciousness i mean i'm not saying it emerges here but within the bob marley and the whalers soul rebels is kind of is is clearly making a gesture to something that isn't just located in in jamaica so is part of a sort of emerging kind of global consciousness that does become very central to what what bob marley and the whalers go on to do yeah absolutely so, well, let's hear quickly another track from that record. Oh, great. Fairly different in tone, and it formerly still really interesting, I think, and which is Rebel's Hop. I, think I wrote Soul Hop on the notes, but I meant Rebel's Hop from Soul Rebel. Give me a little soul, Lord. Give me a little, give me a little soul, Lord. Give me a little, give me a little soul, Lord. 
again, I mean, that's it's just a formally very interesting record. I mean, I, one of the things that's really striking if you listen to this album all the way through is that the arrangements are really interesting. There's this use of of choruses, of call and response, of going back and forth, and the arrangements are very complicated and very interesting, very effective. And here, the 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 very rhythmic on this track the very rhythmic almost chanted sometimes vocal are quite typical of what's going on in some of these songs and it's really a, a very it's a very interesting bit of music which has quite a different energy to some of the slower records some of the slower tracks on the album but which is still doing something very distinctive and is very much anticipating certain strands of reggae and certain qualities of reggae, which are going to be further accentuated by different strands over the next few decades. Mm. Yes. Yeah, I mean, I think, yes, I, it's, 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 it contributes to indeed a sense that this is an album which is reggae-influenced, but it's also very, you know, very open in terms of how it's exploring that form and bringing in other elements into it as well, as you say. So, and The whole album really reminded me of this, the classic early 70s soul albums, mm. people like, like Stevie Wonder, who are producing these records where each track is very distinctive and the whole thing is really about exploring the possibilities of the genre in a mm. very in a very intense way. All right, so what should we go go to next? Yeah, well we want to leap forward a, few, a two or three years to describe and discuss the release of Catch a Fire, uh, which was released with on on Island Records in 1973. So we're we're back to the island story somewhat that we also discussed in some length with our the, when we recorded the first episode uh, on Jamaican music 1965 to 75, which seems like we recorded that several years ago at this point, although it was probably just a six several weeks. But anyway, so yeah, so uh, the Whalers start had already started to release singles with Ireland back in 1965, and Bob Marley had already released I think his I think it was his first single Judge Not with Ireland uh, back in 1963 or Ireland at least picked it up after it was released in 62. So there was already um, a relationship there. And the Whalers um, in t- started, you know, had started to go on uh, to tour um, in order to s- support, you know, and build their career following the release of, of Soul Rebels. And in 1972, they finished a, a UK tour, I think it was, with Johnny Nash, and actually didn't have enough money to return to Jamaica, although they also didn't have any kind of work permits to stay in the UK. But um, before working out what the hell they were going to do, uh, they they approached producer Chris Blackwell at Island, uh, whose roster at this point was, was much more focused on sort of uh, rock music uh, and included Steve Winwood's band Traffic, Emerson Lake and Palmer, King Crimson, Robert Palmer, and um, Roxy Music. So, you know, Chris Blackwell had gone full on with sort of countercultural rock and sort of early progressive rock bands uh, and was doing very well in, in that area. Um, I mean, just to sort of briefly come back to something that we had touched on about Chris Blackwell and his sort of family background in that episode, which I felt you know, at the end of it all was a little bit slightly up in the air in terms of my own research into it. I mean, the kind of issue that just to give the hopefully a very brief re- recap and then move on with this, but the issue was uh, around 
Chris Blackwell's parents and in particular his mother who had become uh, who had um, ended up uh, living in, in Jamaica and being plantation owners and so the question emerged whether they were also uh, had owned slaves i.e had they kind of uh, been they've been owning and running these plantations before slavery was abolished in Jamaica in was it 1843 I can't quite remember that for some reason that that number yeah 1834 sorry when slavery was abolished in Jamaica and I'd done some research and it looked highly likely that uh, Chris Blackwell's mother's family had owned uh, slaves but I wasn't 100% sure because I couldn't quite nail down the information and following that program I did a bit of reading found a book by Jackie Ranston called The Lindo Legacy which was actually commissioned by Chris and one other family member and it just confirms basically that Chris's mother's ancestors had settled in Jamaica indeed in the mid-1700s and one of them had um, not only uh, employed slaves on a plantation but actually had also dealt in slaves or traded slaves. So I guess that answers that question. I mean it had been a slight uh, concern for me um, or it seemed to be an issue because in this in the age of Black Lives Matter and the rest um, perhaps it would be um, useful for this history to be acknowledged, given that Chris would go on to become, you know, so involved in Jamaican music in part through his privileged upbringing, and would go on to champion a figure like Bob Marley, who would, uh, and the Whalers, who would write, as we'll go on to discuss, a, a significant number of anti-colonial and anti-slave songs. So it would be, I think, maybe appropriate for for that for that history to be acknowledged, even if it's clearly not Chris Blackwell's responsibility, whatever is. Uh, parents and their ancestors uh, might have been involved with historically. So that's just to clarify that point, really, because I felt it wasn't entirely, uh, I wasn't 100% clear on it all when we when we recorded that first episode. So Bob Marley and, the, and Peter Tosh and Bunny Whaler approached uh, Chris Blackwell in 1972, not quite sure what they were going to do because they couldn't get back to Jamaica following this tour. And at the time, Chris Bracker was very focused on rock, but he did have one significant uh, Jamaican star on his books, and that was Jimmy Cliff, who had risen to fame in large part through Ireland, and in particular the release of this film and the accompanying soundtrack, The Harder They Come. And that that soundtrack, interestingly, it was didn't only feature Jimmy Cliff records, but I think he recorded maybe three new records for that album, and that included the title track, and that that track plus the album is supposed is said to have been the one that kind of introduced reggae to the world uh, more than any other kind of album. And yet, uh, following the release of the film and the album, um, Jimmy Cliff then um, turns to uh, Chris Blackwell and told him he wanted to leave the label. And it was uh, as Chris Blackwell told me when I interviewed him, which was really for this book I was writing on the early 80s, but we did touch on some of this stuff as, as we were kind of building up to that that point. And Chris did say that, you know, Jimmy, I think, the, uh, yeah, I'm just quoting from the interview, uh, Jimmy, Jimmy Cliff decided to leave in 72, and I met Bob Marley about a week later and felt that he could be very successful but should change direction. Um, and he sort of said separately, the attitude they gave off was like real rebels, um, so there was this kind of this interesting coincidence of the moment that Jimmy Cliff, this, the reggae star, if you like, on Ireland decides to leave, and then the next the next week, 
uh, you know, almost to the day, uh, Bob Marley and the Whalers show up and say they want to kind of record something with Ireland. So as far as Chris is concerned, he took a risk at this point because the Whalers had a, apparently a somewhat mixed reputation. Uh, but he gave them £4,000 uh, to record the album that became Catch a Fire. And uh, because the three Whalers didn't have permission to work in the United Kingdom, they returned to Jamaica to record this album. Uh, it includes nine songs. Um, seven of them were written by by Marley, two of them by Tosh. It was recorded on an eight-track tape um, in, in 1972 using three different studios in, in Kingston. Uh, it features Bob Marley on vocals and acoustic guitar, Peter Tosh on vocals, guitar and keyboards, Bob Bunny Whaler on backing vocals and bongos, and then Aston Family Man Barrett on bass and Carlton Barrett on drums, um, and was eventually mixed at the Island Studios on Basing Street in London. And interestingly, uh, by the time that uh, Black Chris Blackwell got his hands on it, he uh, recorded overdubs um, from a session guitarist called Wayne Perkins, who was with a lineup called the Muscle Shoals. I must admit, I don't know who the Muscle Shoals are too much, um, but he was a guitarist anyway, and he was working on a, on another project, I think, with Ireland at that particular moment. So Chris Blackwell got him to go into the studio, and re- guitar overdubs were recorded for Concrete Jungle, uh, Baby, We've Got a Date, uh, Rocket Baby, and uh, third track, Stir It Up. So this is quite an interesting moment, I think, for in terms of the history of reggae. Uh, and this album in particular is to have rock guitar uh, come into the, the recording, and we'll uh, discuss that a little bit more in a moment. But uh, let's have a listen to Bob Marley and the Whalers' Concrete Jungle. So just uh, maybe I'd say a little bit more about the record before, you know, just describe a few things about it before you uh, maybe uh, say what you what you think of it, Jem. But um, but Chris told I think it's quite interesting that Chris Blackwell said uh, of the way that he wanted to effectively reshape or change the direction of Bob Marley and the, the Whalers. He said. Bob was trying to get a hit on American black radio. And I said that I thought he should basically be a black rock act. So we added in some rock guitar, some synth, which made the record more perhaps palatable for the market that I wanted to reach. I put a unique album cover on it to get uh, attention. And I think that that worked. So there's a kind of, there's a shift going on in which there's a, a certain, if you like, rockification, I guess, of the sound and something Jamaican probably gets lost in that maybe because one of reggae's things had been to about the its focus on sort of Jamaican roots and it wasn't really about blending with you know um, um, you know American or European sort of sounds particularly um, but it's also an incredibly produced record actually and I would say it kind of it works on some basic level it's not like the rock guitar kind of completely doesn't feel like it destroys the kind of feel of the record um so it is kind of is i think it's actually very impressive and we will go on to i'm here at least hopefully one more track but i just just to mention that you know the other thing to kind of note in this 
or rockification, if that's even a word, is that this sort of is the is it's sometimes this is sometimes discussed, described, I should say, as being the first wholly formed cohesive reggae album. So if soul if soul um if soul is it rebel or rebels? I think it's soul rebel, isn't it? Um sorry, soul rebels. If that's kind of got elements of kind of soul and maybe ele- some elements of scar, that this is the the catrifier is really kind of a is is a reggae album and it's conceived of as an album and it, in a in a way it kind of has a kind of sensibility or an intentionality to it that is does kind of represent something more that's been going on in sort of you know let's say rock and jazz in particular and clearly some soul music as well so this uh, the Stevie Wonder albums that are coming through that we've discussed previously but it's really a, it's really written as a as a kind of album and as a reggae album as a kind of statement album but um, it just so happens that it's also got quite you know a fair amount of rock guitar integrated into it as well what what do you think of it yeah well i think it's often referred to correctly as one of the great genius acts of music marketing. Chris Blackwell realizing that if you produce this for the prog rock audience, basically, you could sell loads of this music to them. It was very clever. You can very easily imagine a a world in which that never happened. And, so, and I think it, that I think you're right. I think it does work. I mean, this might be the moment of the rockification of reggae, but it's also the beginning of the reggification of rock and everything else. So, and it's a moment when rock music itself is going through a very expansive phase with the idea of prog rock and studio rock really opening up what can be defined as such. And I think. It's not. I mean, the the marketing of the album is very explicit. I mean, famously, it's Bob Marley smoking a huge spliff, yeah, exactly, on the cover of the record, and it's making very, very clear <coughs> to this prog rock audience what the purpose of this record <laughs> is and why why they should find a point of identification with it. You know, it's a music to smoke to, and it is this extraordinary manifestation of something which I would say rock artists had sort of been trying to do for a few years and hadn't really succeeded in doing to anything like the same extent, was to produce a kind of music which is very mellow, uh, but it has a very clear and unambiguous political message through the lyrics, but also through just what the whole use of, of particular sets of sounds seems to convey to the listener. So it does, it has a really tremendous impact. Um, and of course, the impact of the record globally is just astonishing. It's it's often talked about as being the first record by anybody who wasn't American or British to sell anything like those num- the numbers that it did globally. I don't know if that's true, but certainly in terms of its perceived impact. Yeah, I think it's um, I think its perceived impact was greater than its um, well, no, its impact might have been very real, but the numbers weren't amazing. But the numbers don't have to be amazing for a, something to have kind of significant cultural impact. Of course, we know this. It's partly around what the critics are saying and also who who is doing the listening 
that kind of can mark, you know, there's a lot of early punk albums that didn't sell particularly well at all, or even punk concerts, but, you know, that were, you know, I mean, it's not like Manu Dibango's Sol Makosa necessarily sold, you know, it didn't become a, I don't know, it was a best-selling record, but they, they, these records have a huge impact culturally, and this was was clearly one of those. I mean, there was this there was this thing that it is... It, um, the sales were, you know, Chris. Chris was, you know, in this interview I did with him was like, yeah, the first record, Catrifier, didn't sell very well, but a lot of people paid attention to it, um, and it was at this point that Bob Marley, in particular, sort of became this kind of, you know, this this major figure as far as many critics were concerned. I mean, if we listen to another track just to kind of get a sense of kind of the... Um, Hang on, before we do that, let's oh, just okay. say something about Concrete Jungle. Yeah, well, I was going to say, yeah. Because Concrete, Concrete Jungle well. is just an amazing piece of music. It's an amazing record. It sounds incredibly contemporary. It's a record that could easily have been made like 15 years later. 15 years later, people would still be making records that sound just like this and they wouldn't sound dated. And obviously it's also, because it's it's concrete jungle, it's about their experience of being in London, right? It's about their experience of living, being away from the Caribbean island they came from and living in this somewhat alienated urban environment. And of course, this is it's exactly the moment, 73, it's exactly the moment when the general tone, the general mood, especially amongst young people, at least in Britain, but I think also in the States and in other places, is turning. It's turning from the optimism of the 60s to a sense of pessimism, a, sense, a growing sense of alienation and disappointment. So there is something about the fact that these guys, who to some extent are talking about, they're describing their experience of urban of urban metropolitan ex- existence in the heart of the capitalist empire from an outsider's point of view. But by turning this outsider's gaze upon it, they are producing a view of it and an account of it which millions of people are going to find very relatable. And the way in which it, it synthesizes it is quite listenable, very quite deep, quite relaxing instrumentation with this very dark lyric, this very dark perspective on on the things that they're talking about, is, as I said earlier, it's somehow bringing together a, a very listenable music with a very politicised, a very alienated perspective on its subject matter, which, honestly, from this point on, most serious popular music, like other outside of uh, explicitly dance floor music, is going to be trying to do this for the next twenty years. Mm. It's really extraordinary. Well, it's interesting. Yeah, it's really interesting. And um, I mean, I guess there's this. I mean, one of the things that happens in the same year, and I've yet to check the month that Concrete Jungle was released. So I can't. I don't have an exact idea of the um, chronology here. But Stevie Wonder released Living for the City, also in 1973, so the same yeah. year. And that, I think, is one of the first records that kind of has... That's a seven-minute, seven-and-a-half-minute record, and I think it's got all the sound effects of kind of street life and the honking of car horns and, um, you know, crowds of people. Uh, this sense of the city as a, you know, as a place of, you know, activity and intensity and where things happen. Um, so that's, I suppose that's yeah. Well, there's an, an interesting, interesting contrast there, isn't there, as well, with yeah. a lot of the music we listen to. The New York, if the stuff people who are in New York, musicians at least at this point, are still basically seeing the city as a site of, of radical potential. Mm. 
Whereas people in in other cities, probably most other cities, are not really. They're already largely talking about the city as as a site of alienation. Well, yeah, and I think there's a there might be a point where, well, I guess Bob Marley has grown up in Kingston, so it's not you know, so they're used to cities, but there's a presumably some sort of different scale of kind of the experience. You talk, you talk to anyone who moved from Kingston to London in that period, they'll tell you in that period, they will tell you that it was very, it felt very different. Well, exactly. <laughs> and it didn't feel, and it wasn't a good difference. <laughs> yes. And um, I mean, I find it very, very, very easy to romanticize New York City in the early seventies for reasons I could discuss at some length. I, I suppose I just know a little less or a lot less about what London was like in the early 1970s. But yeah, I'm not sure that yeah there was the the, the same the same levels wasn't. of interact. Generally speaking, I think that New York City in the 70s seems to be a bit more. You know, I'd rather live have lived there than lived in London in the 1970s. So, um, and yeah, there all, wasn't the same sense of utopian yeah, possibility. Yeah, well, it wasn't. There wasn't the, the the potential for integration. I don't think that we clearly got manifested in in New York City in particular. And just yeah, just the title, Concrete Jungle. Is that it sort of makes this obvious point that you know? I mean, I guess there's a political point in there as well that the jungle is seen to be this place where you know undeveloped, underdeveloped peoples kind of behave as if they're kind of potentially subhuman, and it's kind of saying, well, actually, the jungle, the jungle is indeed uh, can be experienced in, in the city as well. And here, it's instead of it being natural, it's kind of you know made up of trees and you know whatever animals and plants and, and the rest of it here is made up of kind of rather nasty architecture it's kind of interesting that on on the album there's this track also called slave driver it, it's it's a record that you know begins to or directly or does directly address the kind of legacy of, of slavery um and in with lyrics that are very direct and evocative um every time i hear the crack of a whip my blood runs cold i remember on the slave ship how they brutalize the very souls today they say that we are free only to be chained in poverty so here we are it's like it's critiquing slavery and saying we're now supposed to be free but it's a you know critique of contemporary politics that you know, not that much had changed. It's a critique of neo-colonialism. Exactly. And it's exactly. That, that critique of neo-colonialism, as I keep saying, in Jamaica at that time was understood as an explicit endorsement of Michael Manley's political project. Yeah. And yeah, and it is, of course, it's going much further in linking and it explicitly linking the, the legacy of colonialism and slavery to contemporary political struggles than you get from almost any music coming out of the state to that time. It's very striking. And it so it does really, as we said earlier, it does mark this as in a way countercultural, a part of a countercultural project, but it's it's what happens when a countercultural project is starting to become actually politically successful and at least in its home. It's becoming it's counter hegemonic. It's a uh, it's really something more than just countercultural by the mid seventies in Jamaica. This kind of discourse, and I think it's very, it's very striking. But also, this song, just this song on its own terms, is it, it's a perfect manifestation of what I was describing a few minutes ago. It's incredibly mellow sonically. It's a perfect track to just have a spliff to and chill out to. But the lyrics are incredibly intense and incredibly articulate. There's a level of articulacy and coherence to the political analysis, which really isn't there. It's really not there in soul music. Like none of the soul, it's it's 
I mean, if you compare this to Marvin Gaye, what's going on or something, which is just everybody always talks about as this great political record. And I do like the record, but it is effectively just a big shrug of the shoulders. Yeah, Bob Marley doesn't have to ask what's going on. He's telling you what's going on. This is what's going on. Neo-colonialism. Well, come on. What Marvin, what Mar- Marvin Gaye's just being rhetorical. He knows what's going on. Come on. I, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I'm, not, I'm never convinced. <laughs> His brother is in kind of a war. I think he knows. <laughs> I know, but it's, a, but it's a difference. It's an interesting difference. And, it's also, as we were saying when we were preparing this, one of the things that goes on at this moment with this record is the the global popularization of Bob Marley as a figure of countercultural opposition, an anti-imperialist opposition. It coincides in quite a similar way with the popularization of, of two other sort of iconic figures who end up on countless millions of T-shirts and teenage and student bedroom wall posters. And that is, on the one hand, Che Guevara, mm one of the leaders of the Cuban revolution, and on the other hand, Bruce Lee. And I always think it's really interesting that this is the moment when all all these three figures, all of whom are, at least in the popular imagination, are important for not being white Europeans or Americans, even though Bruce Lee was was American, actually. Yeah, he made his films in Hong Kong, and mostly up to this point. And so there is something going on in terms of a sort of global counterculture, if you like, to the culture of American imperialism and Western, Ameri- uh, yeah, Western, British and American and French imperialism and neo-colonialism, and, and this becoming part of the popular imagery and the popular vernacular of peoples all over the world. And Bob Marley and and this album are really, really central in that emergent global non-Western and often anti-imperialist consciousness. Yeah. No, it's really, it's really fascinating, isn't it, how these kind of... I mean, I, rem- I remember that we uh, there was a... We did one one of the previous episodes we did on dub. Well, I can't remember if it was a, one of the ones we recorded for patrons or... I don't think so. I think it was for the main series. And I included... I'm pretty sure it was... Well, it was a photo of either Lee Scratch Perry or King Tubby. I think it was Lee Scratch Perry. Lee Scratch Perry. Yeah, and it was, I think, I didn't actually have a date on on the photo, actually, now I come to think of it. But there was a picture of Bruce Lee, basically, a poster of Bruce Lee overlooking him in his recording studio. And you're quite right. I mean, there is this this kind of emergence of, of, you know, non-US um citizens or people who are not identified anyway with being american citizens because uh bruce lee was was born in, in the united states but they're not identified as being american citizens necessarily well, they're not white british or white american yeah, or, or yeah. black american yeah exactly emerging i mean because there were all sorts of you know many kind of figures within you know african americans who kind of became clearly radical countercultural figures during this period and a a number of them were also musicians whether Marvin Gaye deserves to be considered among them or not there was a sense of you know of a politics being articulated and alternative politics being articulated we never got to really discuss kind of James Brown as a countercultural figure or not maybe we're not we shouldn't we're not going to do it here but there are these figures but but James Brown is the first black American musician to become a global star Mm. and this is the point I'm really getting at with these guys it's the globality Mm. It's the global nature of their appeal. Yeah, yeah. It's the fact that Bruce Lee, 
Bob, Bob Marley, Che Guevara, and indeed James Brown. They become these global icons. They're popular in Africa. They're popular in yeah, South yeah. America. They're popular all over the place yeah. as images of some kind of resistance yeah. to Euro-American colonial culture. And what's absolutely and what's particularly significant about Bob Marley is the fact that he's from Jamaica. You know that he's absolutely not American, so he's kind of the sound. You know, he's the you know he's the one of these early kind of one of these early voices of the kind of you know the empire striking back, as it was kind of be later put. Um, you know, the voices of the the downtrodden uh, global south, if you like, or southern hemisphere. So beginning to find his voice, and uh, you know, clearly with records such as Slave Driver. But there's it's almost as if every track on Catch a Fire is just full of like you know, radical, searing political critique. Um, and it is, it's hard to kind of think of another album that is so co, so like focused in its kind of politics, so focused and coherent in, it, in its politics uh, and its critique. And it, and as, a, as we've been saying, it's recorded by um, someone who's, you know, identified, you know, with, with Jamaica very explicitly and not with, not with the United States. And it's also, it's more or less impossible to imagine a record like that becoming the global success that this did any other time other than sort of 71 to 74 or 5, I think. Yeah, you're right. Although, you know, I think we'll come on to discuss this a bit more when we do the second of these two episodes on Bob Marley and the Whalers and Counterculture. But it was is one of the things is that it didn't, it did, although it resonated quite forcefully uh, at this point, it didn't sell particularly well. And it was, it did seem to be, you know, much more of a 1980s thing that, as we'll go on to talk about uh, in right. the next episode, that sort of, it becomes absolutely standard for sort of students in, you know, certainly in the United Kingdom. And I'm, you know, imagine in the United States as well, for students to start having posters of Bob Marley next to Che Guevara uh, on their, on their bedroom, on their bedroom walls and stuff. This doesn't, ta- this doesn't really happen particularly in 1973, I don't think. Is something that kind of becomes much more explicit in the uh, in the early nineteen eighties. So yeah, that's, something right, can, yeah. that's something we can go. On. So, I th- but I think all but the but the the burst of expression is happening here on this album for sure. Okay, great, fantastic. So, so we better leave it there for today. Yeah, and then we'll do more. We'll move on with this story into the mid to late seventies next time. Good. We'll look forward to that. Uh, thanks, everybody. Thanks very much for your support. We're still working on... No, we've already, we are putting out... I think we'll have put out, before you hear this, we'll have put out the first of our heavy dub theory episodes for patrons. Mm. Uh, hope everybody enjoys that. He hears it. Hope everybody else enjoys this. Uh, thanks for your support. Thanks for rating, reviewing us on podcast apps. It really helps. Thanks for just listening and giving us your attention. Uh, until next time bye Tim bye Jem bye everyone one love one love